Hello, and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez is here to entertain you with some more shelf stories. Yo, my peoples, what's up? Welcome back to Shelf Stories, the channel that tells tales from games, books, and life. And also, welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast. I am your host, Jason. Thank you so, so much for stopping by for this latest episode of Good Trouble. These series where I engage in above the table conversations that I feel are necessary in the board gaming space in a spirit of education and compassion. Education is the word of the day, my friends, today. Uh, a, I wouldn't say a bomb, but a, definitely a newsworthy event has hit. And it's like, what's happening? This, this is very, very unique, uh, what has happened in the last couple of days. And I had to reach out uh, and I got a response pretty quickly. So we're definitely uh, in the get the word out mode. And this is good trouble. We are going to, uh, you know, I usually talk about race and culture in this space, but I think uh, economics and forming a union is uh, definitely in the spirit of that as well. We're going to get some education about that because I'll tell a lot of people have a lot of questions, but I am blathering on a lot. Let me introduce my two guests who have been so kind to respond and spend and share an evening with me. So today the topic is the Peso Workers Union. Yes, we are table, we are board gaming. You see all the board gaming. Uh, for those of you RPG folks who are seeing me, they see a lot of board games, but RPGs are in my heart and we are definitely uh, gonna talk about that. The boundaries are porous uh, for tabletop. It is gaming uh, and things that are relevant in the RPG space are going to port over here to the board gaming space. So we're gonna talk about the Peso uh, Workers United. Uh, what is that? Uh, what did I get the, the name of that, uh, Mark? Uh, what's the exact name of the union that had been formed? It is um, United Paizo Workers. So it's the other order, UPW rather than PUW. The man who has corrected me, United Paizo Workers, uh, works for the company. He is Mark Seifter. Please introduce yourself and also welcome to the show. Hi, I'm Mark Seifter. I am the design manager at Paizo and a member of the United Paizo Workers Union, which has been officially recognized as Yay. a union by Paizo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm happy to be on the show and to talk to you about uh, the union and to be on here with uh, a great freelancer as well. So uh, it's something that we have to break down at the very beginning because there is two separate streams that are coming together. We're crossing the streams over here and it's good. Uh, so there is the, aha! Uh, <laughs> there are the workers who are actually working for Paizo and we'll get into all that. And then there's a cadre of freelancers who are supportive. Uh, hashtag Paizo accountability was a popular uh, hashtag. There's been a lot of separate pressure coming from the freelancers. So I'm so happy to have uh, a representative from that end of things. Two entities coming together. The representative I have for here for you is Carlos Cabrera. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Carlos Cabrera. I'm a freelancer for Paizo and uh, and the owner of Something Clever Games as well. Um, doing a little bit of voice acting as also I love those board games behind you because I'm working on a board game project coming up. Fantastic. And Mark <laughs> and I have actually worked together on a recent project for um, Lost Omens Legends. Just. I think it was mid-pandemic, actually. Very nice. Yeah, right, we... that's true. So the the union and all that wasn't the first time. We we definitely were together on two NPCs that were really, really connected in that book. Very cool. So we are going to do a kind of a one-on-one 
so to speak. I mean, this is brand new for people. Uh, maybe people don't even know what Paizo is, so we're going to get in what Paizo is. What a union is. Uh, in the last 40 years in America, especially, it's like, oh, you know, unions have definitely uh, mean different things to different people. So we're going to break all that down, the relationship with the freelancers. So all of that, I've you know uh, listened to people's conversations, gathered as many questions as I can. So this really is kind of a primer. And I will be very honest, transparent. I am pro-union. I have a union organizing background. Uh, that's one of the things that I've done in my career. So that's very much, um, this is going to be a very sympathetic uh, rendering, but I want to, you know, kind of drill down and stick with the facts. This isn't going to be a hagiography. Hey, this is going to be the facts. But there's definitely the, uh, the thrust of it is get the word out and get people talking and ultimately see if you want to support. Okay, so we do need to lay some track and let's talk about Paizo itself as a company. So then Paizo dates back to the, it's not a, like an ancient company. We're talking like mid 2000s or something like that. So Mark, if I can actually kind of break down uh, the history of the company just a little bit so that people have to have some context as to what we're talking about. Sure. I won't go into too great of a detail, but basically uh, there was a time when Wizards of the Coast kind of was going to stop their magazine department. Uh, Wizards of the Coast being the publishers of D&D. Of the, the publishers Dungeons of Dungeons and Dragons, and they, they, they were going to stop with their magazine department who made the Dungeon and Dragon magazines. Uh, Paizo was a new company that was founded then by um, just uh, two independent owners, uh, Lisa Stevens and Vic Wirtz, who were former Wizards of the Coast employees, and to put down the money to create a new company that would take those magazines and took some other magazines and other properties and worked on those. And eventually uh, the magazines went back to Wizards of the Coast. Paizo created brand, a brand new IP uh, intellectual property called Pathfinder that then went on to become an extremely popular new tabletop RPG uh, in its own right that at the height of uh, its popularity was uh, actually topped the ICV2 rankings for RPG and even was higher than uh, D&D for, for a short period of time on there and has pretty consistently been in runner-up slot at other times. So that's kind of what, what Paizo does since then. Paizo has expanded to create a new and also very popular RPG called Starfinder, which is a science fantasy RPG set in a distant possible future of the fantasy RPG Pathfinder. All right. Uh, so we are talking RPGs over here. I mean, Pathfinder, uh, board games will know the Pathfinder adventure card game is a very yep. successful app in the a physical product that I still, they're still producing that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, again, uh, the bonds being very, very tight. Uh, so then uh, give us a picture uh, of the company now. So then, you know, being the number two RPG, so to speak, uh, producer of an RPG and, you know, other things, a lot of fiction. I've always I've always enjoyed Pathfinder Adventures. Always good writing. Always, you know, the uh, the patrimony like Dungeons and Dragons were both adventure magazines. I really I always really enjoyed that. That end of things from Paizo. Um, but it gives a sense of the size of the company. Sure. Uh, you know, so how many employees and, you know, all that kind of thing. There are around 80 employees right now, and that includes not only the editorial department, which is by far the largest department, the editorial department, including uh, designers, uh, that's, that's my team who work on designing new rules and dealing with rule books, developers who work on creating just about any other book you can imagine, uh, editors who just make the words sing in every project, and uh, 
the art staff who are uh, just an amazing group who make the books look um, beautiful. And of course, project management and other people who are on the editorial side. But it also includes uh, finance and marketing and uh, uh, the warehouse because Paizo's does direct sales and has a warehouse customer service for that um, Paizo store and other things like that. And so, and, and a tech team that keeps the website going and all of our other digital uh, things. Mm-hmm. So um, Paizo across all the departments, it's about 80 people, which is, is not that much, but it's definitely bigger than a lot of the other um, tabletop companies that are out there. Right. Mid size, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's not yeah, as big as like an Asmodee or whatever, but like, yeah, it's a, yeah. It's, it's a force to be reckoned with. I mean, the, the fact that the the union started here is it isn't like you know a, a company of five people starting union. Like this is a, this is something that that's happening. Uh, but then there's yeah. not only the employees; there's the freelancers. So uh, maybe you can, uh, Carlos, give us your background in terms of how long you've worked for, uh, worked with Paizo as a freelancer, and how big that group is of people. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but I believe the total freelancer pool is probably around close to 100 or so, I think. Um, I would ballpark it in the very low triple digits. Yeah. Um, so I started freelancing in 2017. I started with third-party publishers um, like Legendary Games and Encounter, um, Encounter Table Publishing and then went to Paizo the following year. So I've been working with Paizo specifically since 2018. That's a, a, that's a ton of freelancers. Yeah. Uh, and, and from what I was reading in terms of doing a research, it, it's not like they're siloed, right? It means a lot of times you have the um, model where like contributors don't really talk to each other. But I think uh, what I'm discovering is that with Slack and Discord and all these tools, freelancers are more able to collaborate. So maybe if you t- tell people a little bit about uh, that, uh, that process. Yeah, so the online process has actually been, um, at least in my experience, very similar to how I first got started with third party and with Paizo. Um, With PaizoCon happening in Seattle every year and being one of the smaller conventions that we actually get in this part of town, um, Paizo employees have always been very approachable and really easy to talk to. And um, especially with just being able to get one-on-one time in regards to just networking and talking about projects, what you're interested in what you want to work on. So I feel the transition into the online space through COVID has been actually really, really simple for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So there's always been like interchange. It's not like it's been but a bunch of people in silos kind of contributing to yes, a pot. Yes, 100%. Yeah, yeah I think that it became more accessible to a lot of people through the pandemic, being able to reach people online with Discord and things like that. Absolutely. And- we set up uh, Discords for every project that allow freelancers on the same project to communicate, but there were also discords that allowed for virtual versions of freelancer summits during PaizoCon. And some of those led to larger discords that are just like, hey, any freelancer for Paizo can join this discord that is otherwise private. And that really uh, led to an increase in networking as well that helped freelancers meet other freelancers and just learn how awesome our freelancers are. Okay. All right. Um, so then just to round out, just, I'm not going to just like talk about Paizo all the way. I think that just getting a picture. Uh, so then Paizo leadership, you mentioned that there were two founders. Uh, what does the leadership picture look like at Paizo? Okay. So um, Paizo as a company overall ha- is actually relatively dense in um, like min- middle or lower managers, partially because as we will get to later, 
Um, the like compensation and salary is not a thing that they could always increase, but they could sometimes be like, well, we'll give you this um, managerial position. Um, but when you're talking about the upper level executive team, right. the leadership team. So at this point, uh, you know, Lisa and Vic have been in the industry for a very long time. They are stepping back. And that leaves um, Jeff Alvarez, the former chief operations officer, um, stepping into the role as um, the president with uh, Eric Mona, the publisher and uh, the chief creative officer who's in charge of that, that big editorial department. So that is, um, he's the one who's in charge of the department I am in. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there's the, uh, the chief financial officer uh, role, which is very important because it not only deals with money, but also HR reports sure. to the chief financial officer. And then, um, yeah, that's, that's basically what you have for like the upper executive mm. team. Okay. Uh, but they are, there are also some vice presidents um, as well of marketing and sales, um, mm. Jim Butler and Mike Webb. Okay. So it's not just like one or two people, like, you know, maybe sometimes we talk about these companies and it's like, okay, here, go talk to this person. There is a uh, management structure. There is, there are roles that are assigned. So in terms of the union moving forward, it's not just like one person. Right. And then there's directors. Mm -hmm. And then beneath those directors, there's usually a, like, someone whose title is like managing developer, development manager, design manager, managing editor, like me, design manager, some of whom are union eligible and some of whom aren't due to the exact law, uh, union law. I am union eligible, so I am here. And those are the people who directly work with hand in hand with workers and do a lot of work on the ground as well. Right, all right. Okay, so then unions don't just, arise it's not good not like a bunch of happy people say okay let's form a union now uh the context of the formation of the union i mean it's it's a bit of road right it's been a road to get to get here and i think that you know we might know you know like the big incidents right we see you know uh i think there was a uh, customer service person who was let go and then another person who you know voiced displeasure and also left the company and that happened a short time ago like you know within the last i think it was september and that seemed to be the and that seemed to be the catalyst. And I'm being very careful. I don't want to like, this isn't like a mudslinging thing. I just want to set context. And that seemed to be the catalyst of what went on. But from what I know, it's never just one incident. It, it seems to be like a buildup of stuff that's happening. So I'd like to tell that story. I like to tell a story of like the, the slow rolling buildup to these incidents and then the formation of the union. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, should I start with, because it's, it, it's two strands. So which came first? Was it the freelancer strand or the inside the office strand. So if you're talking about right now and the union that eventually successfully formed the freelancer concerted work action, uh, which we'll we'll talk about in a bit, did occur before the union formation came to the company. However, it's worth noting that even like three years ago, people were talking about should we form a union because many of the underlying issues, just as you predicted, um, had been percolating through the company for years. So there had been, there had been whispers. There were people who were talking to me about it. And then they're like, Walmart, you know, you're moving more towards being a manager. We're not sure if you can be in it. We eventually Mm. found out that I could basically on the day the union was recognized. But, um, so for, for a while, it just kind of went on in the background, but Mm. I would say 
And despite you might think, well, it's got to be the union that, that did this, the things first, the, the freelancers this time really had the courage to come out and do just a major um, action on their own. Mm-hmm. And um, so why don't we let Carlos talk about that first? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I mean, when I first caught wind of everything that was happening, um, particularly with Paizo and not just like other things I've seen in the industry, because if my research is correct, I believe the only other union in the game industry right now was after um, Cards Against Humanity kind of blew up in the news. Um, and, you know, my Twitter was just blowing up with all of his information, just getting inundated of what was happening in the industry. And with my personal experience, you know, freelancing is only my side gig right now. And as a day job, um, as a physical security officer in the middle of the pandemic, I've been with my company for uh, over a decade. I've got 12 years of security experience. And I personally made the transition from being an hourly unionized security officer here in Seattle to becoming a manager myself and then losing all of those union protections that I had when I became a salaried manager. So I already knew what the process from what that looks like to um, how the unions can protect you, um, you know, how many hours you can work, get scheduled. So you're not, you know, going over what the, what the union and state limits are. Mm-hmm. And then as a business owner too, um, filing my own business in 2015, even before I started doing freelancing allowed me to see the perspective of how minimum the state requirements are for what you need to do mm. as a business owner and as a manager to actually just run your business and you know do all the paperwork for example and the minimums are really just that there's really very little that you're required to do um, from an ethical standpoint in regards to running a business in Washington state And with my union background, as soon as I heard about all of this news um, through Twitter for me, I was like, yeah, this is something that I think just needs to happen. Sure. And so talk a little bit about what the freelancers, I mean, you were as a freelancer, what you were seeing. Yeah. You know, we got you, 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 we got it talking about like, okay, the protections, right? So obviously the protections are against certain things. So maybe you could talk about those certain things that a union can protect from. Well, uh, the first thing that I had I know is uh, happens when they unionize was that unlike other employees who are pretty standard in Washington State, um, you are no longer an at will employee, and that means that for whatever reason, and they don't even really have to dictate what that reason is. Standard employees in Washington State can just be fired for any reason. That is um, true. Yeah, and for for example, now that I'm a manager in a security company in Washington State we have to do very detailed documentation um, whenever we have to let someone go from the company. And I've had to personally experience myself doing that at least once since I've been with the company. Um, Whereas if they let you go, they don't have to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. They could just, you're not in the union. I'm not in the union anymore. So they could just give me notice and I'm gone. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the one thing that has kept me around in the company for the 12 years I've been around was basically um, my performance reviews I would get every year. And the fact that I think in 2019, um, I actually left my security company to work on my business and doing freelancing full time. And then of course the pandemic hit and it had to return to my job. Mm. But thankfully after, you know, putting in already a decade of work at that point, they were more than happy to have me back when the pandemic hit. Sure. 
Okay. So then um, I guess, uh, so then we have the, the looking at this, the field, it's like, you know, oh man, these, these employees are kind of like into that well stuff and everything. We'll get into that more. Uh, mm-hmm. Inside Peso, what was some of the things that were going on inside Peso? We're talking like 20, I guess, 17, 2018, 2019. I mean, a, a lot of things were going on overall. Um, if you're talking about, are you talking about what were the conditions or yeah, are you the talking kind, about what, what were the actions? The kind of, yeah, the conditions, like, because uh, the union, we'll so, talk about like the, that was the reaction to that, which is the formation of the union and what you're trying to protect against. Let's talk about, and I don't want to, this isn't mudslinging, right? This is just like, just give people a, a general sense of the kinds of things that were going on that were being seen and that got conversations going. So I'm, I'm not going to focus on any specifics here. I'm going to talk about the overall trend that um, in a way that supports what the union's main goals that are pushing for. Um, So one of the overall trends is the pay for this area is so low that it is not enough to really make do Uh, a lot of Seattle, Washington. Yes, the land of Amazon, (laughs) Seattle, Redmond area. Right. And like the starting pay you get, even in the editorial department where you can get more than some of the other departments uh, is still somewhat below the MIT calculated um, living wage, like minimum living wage for the area Mm -hmm. It's almost a minimum living wage, but it isn't. Um, And a minimum living wage is not exactly a, a, a great wage, especially when you're asking for people with a very specialized skill set who can do something that is not so easy to do when it comes to technical writing, technical editing, and uh, other companies that are asking for a similar um, sort of skill set but are not in tabletop RPGs can offer more. Now, other tabletop companies don't always do so. Wizards of the Coast, uh, again, who make Dungeons and Dragons, they do pay more by a by a pretty substantial amount but most other places don't really because of the fact that tabletop rpgs don't really necessarily make that much money i mean we sell um a core rulebook for pathfinder now for an amount is slightly less per page than in 1974 the original dungeons and dragons box set while each page has um around 900 words instead of 388 and full color art and not like the, those old black and white drawings, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that is not counting for inflation. So uh, the, the fact of the matter is not a lot of money comes in, not a lot of money goes out. And um, the money is really um, kind of a something that causes, it's a root cause of some of the other things such as massive amounts of crunch I'm sure if there were a lot of money, it would be easier to hire more people so that you wouldn't have a massive amount of crunch. But as is, there's a massive amount of crunch. In fact, it's not it's not quite so much that it's like, oh, we have our normal time and then we have our crunch time and then the crunch time is over and we're relieved. It's more of a constant state of crunch. And if you ever kind of make it out of that crunch and are like, I did it, I built a buffer. And then like the moment you get sick or something happens, mm. It's, it's gone and it may have taken at the rate that things were going like a year or more to build up any kind of buffer and it's gone and you're back in being like behind the schedule. So talk a little bit about schedule, what, what, talk about what crunch is. It's a very uh, kind of insider. Sure. Term. So the, the term crunch means um, that 
it's used not just in tabletop RPGs. It's used a lot in in a lot of different jobs in, in video games, um, etc. It means just there's a ton of work, and it's more than you can do without either putting in way more hours or without like really, really pushing your brain and body during those hours yeah. to perform um, in a way that not only burns you out, maybe even more than putting in the extra hours, but possibly leads you to miss things that you should have caught. So that's sort of the, that's sort of the situation with crunch. And mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of, unfortunately, is an ever-present situation in, in, in a, I mean, it's not just Paizo. There's a lot of companies. It's pretty common in video games that they'll have at least some amount of crunch time. But Paizo is, is generally always in mm -hmm. a state of crunch because of not being able to have enough people to do the amount of things. So you crunch to get it done anyway. And we're talking in terms of production, we're talking uh, supplements, we're talking adventures, yes. we're talking, uh, you know, uh, public play, you know, organized play modules and that kind of thing. Where, where, like, yes. There's a whole bunch of products that come out. There's a ton. And right. a lot of them don't have the option of moving, like, um, or at least it's very, would be very problematic for the company. For instance, there's a Gen Con release. Well, if, if that doesn't release at Gen Con, then you don't have a Gen Con release. Or you said organized play scenario. That's a great example um, because those get advertised as coming out at a particular time. Sure. And then conventions that are like, ah, our convention is one day after that time. We will offer 20 slots of this new thing because it's the brand new thing. No one will have played yet. And then if, it, if it's even like, mm -hmm. you know, two days late, then it's that the convention is like, well, I offered 20 slots of that. And now we have zero slots of that because it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of situations where there's, uh, and then of course there's like, you know, there's financial reasons that you want to get products out sooner, right? There's a lot of reasons why you can't be just like push the book or skip the book. Now, all that being said, um, I do want to say that Recently, and even before the union was officially recognized, thanks to the freelancers and just everything that's been going on, the, the executive did look into it and started being like, okay, but we're going to be willing to push books a little bit more than we have in the past to give a little bit of relief right now. So okay. things have started to get better. And the reason for that was even before the union came out, um, the freelancers did a concerted work action of not turning in things. It wasn't on behalf of improving freelancer, uh, like uh, the way that things work for freelancers. It was entirely on behalf of in-house staff, which is mm -hmm. what made it like amazing, special, and just like not like what you're usually used to seeing when you read news somewhere about like, oh, some group is striking or doing a concerted work action. It was completely selfless. Uh, or at least not for themselves, but for the like love and affection felt for uh, the Paizo workers who worked with the freelancers and who were in this bad situation. Brotherhood and sisterhood. That's what unions are all about. Uh, talk a little about that, Carlos. Talk a little about that, how the freelancers, uh, what they saw uh, and uh, and where there's a there's like a, a workplace culture thing too. I'm, I want to kind of push that off a little bit. Let's talk. Let's just focus on like the productivity and the crunch that we were speaking of, and some of the expectations that maybe you felt as a freelancer, and then maybe that prompted a little bit of you know um, speaking up. Certainly, um, I, I feel like crunch is 
even familiar to me with my physical security job since now that I no longer have those union protections, um, security was designated an essential service mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And I was also, um, so I was forced to work outside physically at my building to secure that location while also doing my freelance work on top of all that. Um, it actually affected me in ways where um, I had to reduce one of the assignments that I was actually on contract with, trying to juggle all of that at one point. And then, you know, even had to pull out of another assignment because I was working so many hours physically in the middle of a pandemic while trying to do this work. 24-7 mm. um, security is its own sort of crunch type of environment because um, as manager, especially now that I no longer have union protections, there has to be someone located in my building at all times, at least one officer. And if I have someone that calls out sick and I can't get any extra help from the on-call officer team that we have, I am the one specifically that has to do that. And I also have a uh, little girl who just turned five this past weekend, but I'm a single father. So every single time I had to work those extra hours that affected my family personally mm -hmm. and having to figure out what I want to do for childcare in the middle of a week where I'm supposed to be watching my daughter. Mm -hmm. um, so I already had that going on in addition to the crunch time. And um, for example, one of the assignments um, I was actually brought on to do maybe a three or four week um, turnaround on a Pathfinder scenario for a PFS. And I just wasn't able to do it with everything else that was going on uh, with the pandemic last year. So things like that have a very, very real effect, even on freelancers who aren't full-time PISO stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah, everybody felt it. Everybody felt yeah. it. And, you know, it's, I'm a, so I'm a psychotherapist. That's my day job. And like, you know, that's, you're telling stories that are like, you know, 35 times a week, I get that story of like, you know, people, healthcare workers, and like we, not everybody uses that word, but like I, I can mm -hmm. see half my audience going like, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> not enough workers, too much work and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so then talk a little bit about the specific action itself, how the, um, the, the not the, like basically, you know, when it comes to labor, we only have one real power, yeah. which is not working. That's the, it's what it's, it's the thing that will <laughs> give them, give like a, a management, like the, the flag, yeah. like you can say everything that you want is to write all the emails and everything. At the end of the day, if you, if they're not listening, there's only one thing that will get their attention and the fortunate, that's an unfortunate thing in the history of labor unions. So then that's, that was the power that was exercised. Maybe talk a little about the, what it, what went into that. Certainly. Uh, so when all of these things were coming to light about what the working conditions at Paizo was, um, we freelancers decided that even if we were already on assignments, that we would refuse to turn in those assignments until better working conditions for PISO employees were actually yeah. going to happen. And that and, was like organized over Slack or Discord? Was that organized over? Like yeah, that was all and... that was all social media, Discord, um, wow. Twitter. All of the um, freelancers came together on that um, using whatever online tool that they could. And when um, I heard about what was going on, there was at least 50% of the freelancers already involved in stuff like that before I even spoke out publicly on Twitter about it myself. Wow. And whenever you see freelancers being involved in um, union stoppages or work shortages, sometimes the company will reach out to freelancers to circumvent that, to make sure that the work still happens. But all of the freelancers banded together 
and said, no, we are not going to participate until these conditions improve. And that happened before the union even. Right. So, the, <laughs> so the executives right. already knew they weren't going to be able to go to the freelancers in, in a situation like that. In fact, mm-hmm. There was already pressure because like Carlos said, there were well over 40 freelancers. And we said there might be a little bit over 100 total. And some of those uh, included some of the biggest names among our freelancing pool who Mm. were part of banding together as well. So Mm -hmm. it definitely had a noticeable effect. And it was uh, the freelancer uh, concerted work action was immediately felt. At Paizo, a lot of people who had been about to order a book among workers were like, oh, my gosh, is this book going to happen? And like, fortunate, fortunately, uh, like Eric Mona was immediately like, it is not your fault to workers who had a book. If the book doesn't come in, the freelancers are, um, are not doing their work now. But also, you know, we're the ones who did things first that um, are that the freelancers had a, had a right to do that based on what they were thinking so but i want you to know that like this is completely not your fault to anyone mm-hmm. who wasn't getting out their book so okay. that helped uh because there was definitely someone on my team who was about to order one and that helped he he got a uh felt a lot less nervous knowing that we were being supported in that by the company because you know like it's something to worry about and companies don't always necessarily look after or support workers in a situation where even if it's not their fault so it was good that it was happening here mm-hmm. and that worker action it was that earlier this year that freelancer action happened uh in september it yep. was after the um it was after we lost the two customer service members mm-hmm. and then uh the few days more and um and then the freelancer action happened and okay. then uh, the union was presented to, um, well, you, you know, uh, I guess it was, let's see. It was a few weeks ago. Um, okay. I can, I can look for the exact date that the union happened, but that was several weeks after, um, the official release and announcement of the union it was several weeks after the freelancers had already started their action completely independently of the union, just on behalf of not themselves again, but on behalf of the workers at Paizo. Okay, so then uh, let's fill in one other gap before we get to the actual formation of the union, which happened very recently. Um, there's also workplace culture stuff, you know. And again, we're not going to go into um, specifics, uh, but in terms of uh, complaints among staff being feeling heard, especially among marginalized creators. Uh, you know, feeling like, you know, part of the team or, you know, am I working for, you know, does, does, does this management have my back in terms of like the other stuff, not just the crunch aspect? Uh, I mean, whatever you're comfortable with sharing, you know, on a general level, what were some of the conditions that were happening on that end that maybe people were talking about? So I would say that one of the big things there was transparency or really, you know, the lack of transparency. So there wasn't really a, um, a huge amount of transparency within the company figure, uh, with regards to just like overall what was going to happen and the way decisions were made. Um, in terms of company finances, like occasionally uh, the company actually would give some pretty transparent information about finances that may have been beyond what other companies did. But frankly, as of right now, it's been years since the last time they did that and people had been very curious and had not heard so uh the lack of transparency and also like 
you know, the lack of response when people go to ask for something. And like you said earlier in the show, companies are, um, you know, sometimes companies act with balance, but more often than that, they act to maintain the status quo because the status quo is something that's comfortable and they don't have to do anything different. And so a lot of times people would ask for something and it would not happen and the status quo would remain. So what I think would be that's an something... example of a something that would happen, you know, just to kind of give people a concrete uh, thing of like, you know, so uh, just com- kind of sort of any kind of any kind of request, um, if it was made by one person, might not um, necessarily might not necessarily move up in the same way that if a lot of people talking about it together ask the same question. And um, I guess. I don't really want to get into some of the high sure. stakes ones that also need right. an independent investigation before they there can be determined. So I'll talk about a random low stakes example where Perfect. it did turn where it did turn out fine without a union, but it did require a lot of people working together. So Perfect. it's a very inside baseball thing. But um, when it comes to when you're presenting a new character for the game, uh, some characters can have levels. And the level determines how powerful they are. Now, in some cases, when the new character is in an adventure and you're fighting them, you absolutely not only need to know their level, you need to know everything about them. But there are other times when they're just kind of in the in the side or they're introduced as a mysterious old man who lives in the woods. And you kind of want to leave it open. Is this just some guy who lives in the woods? Is, you know, like in The Lord of the Rings, is Tom Bombadil actually super powerful, <laughs> uh, right? Uh, right? To give an example of that. Level and 30. So, <laughs> and, you, and so there is, there, there, were, there were a lot of people who liked being able to introduce a character and not put uh, parentheses with like Tom Bombadil, parentheses, level 30 secret right. god dude uh, inside of the parentheses, but just say Tom Bombadil. Right. As an example with Lord of the Rings. Um, but there was going to be a mandate that said that you had to do that in every place, uh, whether it was necessarily um, what the individual developer thought was the right move or not. And so some individual people talked about it and generally it was like, no, but we're going to do it anyway. So a good faith effort was made to for one book that had like three books from completely other teams that were all dealing with the same characters because we had certain regions that multiple books were going to talk about. Like you may have, uh, for those who really know our products, like we doing guns and gears. And then we have a book that and adventure and another book that go in the same place that guns and gears talks about. And then we're doing a book of the dead and then other books about the nations of the dead. And so we gathered together a bunch of people to try to figure out what levels should these characters be? Like just one book's worth of people can't decide this. There's an entire adventure that might even make you fight that person. And then Mm -hmm. we said it was level 10 here and level 15 there. So when we gathered everyone together, what we discovered is that literally everyone did not want to, to have this as a blanket rule. Again, this is a very minor thing I'm using because I don't want to talk about a major thing that hasn't been determined yet. Mm -hmm. So uh, once we realized that literally every single worker and middle manager wanted flexibility to do it, whichever way is correct for the project, then um, the uh, one of the developers who is now development manager um, went and talked to them and is like, hey, yeah, we kind of don't want to do this. And here it's undersigned by literally everyone. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. 
that makes sense. We'll just do it when we need to do it. So it's a good example of a, just kind of a very more very polite collective action that succeeded when several people had individually made the plea and it, it wasn't heard because companies tend toward the status quo. And also, if you're someone with a lot of experience in the industry who is high up in the company, and like, I will understand why you might be like, well, you know, I've been here for a while. This one person who came to me maybe hasn't been, and I'm going to trust my own uh, opinion over their opinion if it's a one-on-one. I can see that, and I can mm-hmm. see why you might be more willing to trust it if literally everyone says it. So um, that, that, that's a kind of a low stakes example, sure. but you can assume that examples like that were like relatively, relatively common. And I, I think they are in many offices and mm-hmm. many different jobs where uh, if you just kind of say you don't like how things are going or you want to do things in a different way, it's not necessarily just going to change because right. you said that. And there's like HRE stuff and there's, there's always, you know, as a, from a union background that I have, like when I hear that HR is like so closely aligned with management, then HR is like, uh, can I talk to them? Can I trust them? Is that a pathway for me? Uh, so there's just, it's like a bunch of stuff. So we're going to, yeah, I mean, HR in HR in general, as a job at any company has the interest of the company at heart and not, uh, as a, as a department, as interests of the company at heart. And in so much as it has the interest of employees at heart, it is because either a HR is supposed to, you know, work for the interest of the company by working for the interests of employees, but tie break for the company, or right. you might have an individual HR person who is just a really good person who really deeply cares about the other people at the company beyond the purview of their job and who they're supposed to be looking out for. And that can happen on an individual basis, but other than that, if it comes down to what's best for the person who's going to HR or the company, I mean, they'll try to align both to have happier people. But mm-hmm. an HR person does look out for um, is looking out for the company's liability and the company's um, right. issues. HR being human resources. Again, this is one on one. That's people. right. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I'm so glad that you articulated. It, but so one last question before I get to the union, I'll go to Carlos. Um, you articulated that like, okay, this like, this isn't about like malice. This is like, you know, just, you know, a bunch of people who are overworked and who have, uh, you know, their own kind of pr- perspectives and their, um, and there's a bias towards the status quo when it comes to management. Um, in your experience, Carlos, working with Paizo and other companies, I mean, did you say, do you see this, that's the same thing in terms of, okay, these aren't malicious people, but these are, you know, they're just like, there's just something else going on that might be causing friction. Yeah, um, I always thought that it might have been something else because with the several years I've been freelancing with Paizo, like, I mean, everyone that I've ever met has been pretty wonderful people all around. Um, As a business owner, because um, I filed an LLC when I filed my business in 2015. And when I found out that you had to at least be a um, sole proprietor to be a writer in Washington State, I was like, okay, I've already got that squared away. Sure. But um, seeing how that filing your own business, especially if it's not just yourself, brings to light, like basically what the, how little you actually have to do um, to uh, support your employees. And I don't even cut myself a paycheck. I don't have anyone that works with me currently, even though I've been discussing with a design partner about some current growth. It's just like the the vast emptiness that sort of exists in 
how what little is required compared to what good people would like to see in their company can be a pretty right. large gap. Yeah. Um, There's a big difference between legal and moral. Yes. Uh, read the letter from Birmingham is. Jail, uh, Martin Luther King, to talk about, you know, you can have legal and you can have moral on the legal, especially in America uh, over the last however long it's been since like the 1980s, which is where we start to get a little bit of deunionization. The, you know, the standards for treating employees is like, you know, uh, don't hack them into bits with a chainsaw in the bathroom. And that's no, like you, the you are, you're so right about the difference between legal and moral. And I do want to make it clear. Paizo has not um, reached the level that like we in the union are comfortable for in some of these areas, especially when it comes to um, things like compensation and crunch. But Paizo is not at that bare minimum right. legal requirement because like you said, with the chainsaw, like, we had a situation where like a lawyer came in to try to describe what the bare minimum legal requirements are, um, and what the legal definitions were for things like harassment at one point. And um, well, based on what I know from the lawyer's presentation and having paid attention to it, I can tell you that what happened to the lawyer while he was giving the presentation from us was not harassment, but also that's because almost almost nothing is except for a very small number of things, very technical legal terms. And right. what companies do, even companies that um, that are not all the way up to what, you know, I believe the moral standards should be is definitely above <laughs> the legal standard for that, because there's only like two or three things that can be legally uh, fit the legal definition of harassment. So uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it was actually pretty scary. And it, it, the one thing about that presentation that, that caused the, the issue is that it, it wasn't like made really clear that it was like, listen, this is the legal definition, but also any company that is not like completely being immoral is probably going to be way above this in terms of mm -hmm. wanting to deal with certain situations. Because they, you know, there was like a little quiz is like, is this thing harassment? And then it was just this horrible Thing. And I can't mm. remember exactly what it was, right? But it didn't meet any of the three criteria. And so you want to say, yes, it, it was. And the answer is, well, no, it didn't meet the legal criteria, but any moral company would put a stop to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, Mark, of course, would be able to know um, what the specific conditions of Paizo are like. But as a business owner in Seattle, my company is actually registered in Seattle proper, I both live and work downtown and my business, I run from home. So the, just as an example, the minimum um, wage requirements for Seattle are, I think about 17, $18 right now. And um, any company that is not in Seattle proper, like say Redmond's or North Seattle, uh, Tacoma, where the airport's at, that's not a requirement that they have to do because they're not in city the city boundaries right. mm -hmm. okay so then that gives a lay of the land hopefully to folks uh why a union is necessary yeah. uh and you know because in terms of you know guarding against crunch and having a collective voice to you know even when you know tom bombadil has a level or not like having a collective voice is just better than having that individual voice just on a quality of life perspective like it's just nice to be heard and you're yeah. more likely to be heard in a group than you are just kind of individually uh, and and even, then you it, do, it doesn't even have to be adversarial, right? It's the union right. is trying to make Paizo better in a way that 
we hope is going to make it better in a way that helps everybody. Uh, and it's just that sometimes that that's how that's how it happens at Python and probably at other companies where one person tries to have an idea that will help and, and nobody listens to it. Right. Mm-hmm. But if the union ha- can come up with ideas that wind up helping the whole company and collectively speak it, it opens negotiations and it carries a wheat that causes those ideas to be considered when mm-hmm. they might not have been considered before. So it's not like uh, that the union is existing like in a way that's like being adversarial or negative. It's mm-hmm. a positive, it's a, it's it to be a positive force that's going to help. And it's going to help by bringing things into discussion rather than being just sort of like beh- simmering behind mm-hmm. the scenes. And occasionally one person talks about it and then nothing comes of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I will absolutely get to the adversarial. <laughs> that is, I have a lot, a whole thing about that. Um, but before we do that, I want to, again, set more context. So then a 90, uh, around 80 employees. Uh, so how many are unionized? How did that process go? Uh, and, you know, what, like, you know, how, what's the relationship if you're not unionized? How do you relate to those workers? Just structurally. Okay. So describe what's going on. Sure, there. sure. So of those 80 employees, there are a decent number who are not union eligible for, um, there are a variety of reasons in the US. Now I am not an expert on union law. I'm someone who, when the union was announced, uh, because at the time it wasn't clear whether or not I could join it. I read up on union law, do not take anything I say as being necessarily exactly correct. But uh, the NLRB, which is the government board that determines whether or like what who can be in a union and whether or not a union is exists. Uh, National federal, Labor Relations Board. <laughs> that's right. Um, at the federal level has certain criteria that it uses to exclude people from being in the union. And some of them are like very specific about like agricultural workers. But one that is very common and that Carlos talked about before for himself is that anyone who is seen to be a supervisor is um, not able to join a union. Right. Now, um, it used to be that that meant that like your role was mainly a supervisory role. But in a 2006 court case, Oakland versus somebody, I could look it up, but uh, it was determined that someone who has the authority to, uh, to sort of manage and direct other people in what they do uh, could potentially count as a supervisor if they made a lot of like kind of very decisive and judge or sorry insightful and judgment call related ways of doing it rather than more mechanistic even if they only did that for 10 to 15 percent of their job and the other not 85 to 90 percent was work Mm -hmm. the the basic work that everyone else does and so that complicates things because as i mentioned earlier paizo uh uh, fairly um fairly frequently gave people managerial roles that did have a small amount or more, more than 15% of management, but also a lot of work, sometimes like a full amount of work plus management as, as part of the crunch. So um, like Carlos was talking about where he had management and he would sometimes also be the one who was Paul pulled in to fill for uh, when mm-hmm. there was an empty slot. So due to that fact, there's a fairly, uh, fairly substantial number of ineligible members of the ones who are eligible a super majority mm. have joined the union it's it's just a very very high percentage mm-hmm. of all the union eligible it's not all uh but it's a very high percentage 
Now, again, I'm not an expert on union law. I looked it up because we have a union. But um, as far as I can see, and, and no one else who I've talked to, including other people in the union, have corrected me when I talked about this. Um, if you are not in the union, but you are part of the sort of collective group, the bargaining group of the union, and you don't join it, you are still considered like an objecting member of mm-hmm. the union. So you object to the union either for whatever reason you don't want to pay or you have a religious reason or something else like that. You still wind up having to pay dues anyway because the union is doing things on your behalf. But as an objecting member, it's possible after a certain amount of time, if the dues were not used at all for a thing that was related to you, you get some of them back. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, like, it might not even be a lot. It depends on the situation. And even knowing to this point has exhausted the limit of what I know. But the point is that, <laughs> um, so it, people who are eligible who didn't join would be objecting members of the bargaining group. People who did join are uh, like me, are members of the union. And then there's the executives, the leadership top people who are making the decisions. And there are people who are sort of like Carlos and his security company, um, and my partner, Linda, who also works at Paizo, who are enough of a supervisor that they'll bear that they will make supervisor on those grounds in that 2006 mm-hmm. court case, but are not at the upper echelons of the company making decisions. So they're in a situation more like Carlos, where they're not protected by the union mm-hmm. and um, also sort of not making the big decisions either and are kind of in the middle. Yep. Mm-hmm. Definitely middle management. <laughs> Uh, it, it's it's super complicated, people. I mean, uh, anybody who knows, and every single state has a whole different yes. uh, outlay because, yes. like you know, you have this phenomenon called right to work, where some yep. uh, in some states uh, you can be you can basically have what the union has in terms of the negotiated salary. You don't have to pay union dues. You're not technically part of a union. So then, only that, a few states right. still have that, but and Washington is not one of them. But you're sure, absolutely yeah. right. But if you have, have a mm-hmm. a right to work state, then there's no such thing as or it's it's a lot less of a situation with the objecting member uh, right. people, um, you can wind up avoiding paying quite, quite a bit or all super complicated, but uh, yeah. we don't <laughs> but, need I mean, to, we don't mm-hmm. need to get all into that. Here, but are there union dues? Uh, does, does the UPW have union dues? I mean, I think all unions have union dues because um, unions have to have union dues to be able to pay for just sort of the actions that union takes. And um, I believe, and again, not an expert on all of union law, but that to build up a war chest in case you need to uh, have a strike, Mm. you know, you take the money that you've gathered from the dues and you can use that to pay people during the strikes so that they're not making zero during that Mm. time that that happens. Now, obviously, and I want to make this very clear, um, the UPW is not calling for a strike or a boycott right now. Uh, of anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're at the stage where we've been voluntarily recognized. So the next steps are mm-hmm. to establish a team of negotiators and just mm-hmm. talk it out with uh, with the executives. And that'll be a back and forth process. As far as I've seen in union law, it goes back and forth until either an agreement is reached or at some point that is not entirely clear to me, the executives can be just like, this is stalled. We'll go with the last one that uh, had been offered. And if the union says, well, that's not in good faith, there is a reason we didn't accept that, then the union can call for a strike. Right. Obviously, um, I don't think 
Obviously, no one yet. is hoping. For, no one, yeah. Yeah, no one is hoping that that will happen. I think everyone is very hopeful that a good negotiation, fruitful negotiation, will will happen at this point and, in time. And I want to reflect upon this, and I'll get back to the. I want to get to the antagonism piece now because uh, reading. So you said that a number of times. Uh, reading through your FAQ because uh, uh, UPW has an FAQ on the website, multiple times, it's not antagonistic. It's not a, and I feel that. I feel that like because I, I do a lot of tough conversations in my channel and I'm always like, okay, this is not this. This is not an attack. This is not this. This is not, a, you know, trying to like reassure people because, you know, you talk about this scary thing. A strike is scary. And union itself, I mean, just the 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 reputation that unions have, like we just get this, all this negative um, connotation because the only time we ever hear about unions are when they're taking actions and actions usually being some kind of work stoppage or slow. Well, and I mean, also there's, there's a, like everything we see on in any direction has a bit of propaganda to it from whatever Mm -hmm. the direction of the people who want to tell you about things. And look, when you talk about people in general, right, there are going to be some people who do things and are very upright. And there are going to be some people who do things that are pretty shady. And I'm sure there are unions who have done things that, that are shady that are out there too. And I'm sure there are people who want to make sure you know about that because right. they don't like unions. Right. And they're right. also, but there are also unions who've done things that are very, very helpful and important um, or even things that are limitations that we just take for granted now, mm-hmm. like a 40 hour work week or having weekends off. So um, that and this is a union that is formed of Paizo workers who um, are forming the union out of love, um, like kind of love the products that uh, we make uh, and that we support for those who are not making the products and that just want to make things better. And mm-hmm. a lot of people at Paizo like Again, one of one of the big issues um, with everything that is going on in terms of the salary, like I said, is it's a difficult job that requires a, a significant degree of education, but is paid for very poorly. Um, so, but this also means you have some, like you know, you have people who are very skilled and um, who really. Um, are very insightful and are those are the people who are forming the union and who are putting it together. And there are other people at the company that, that a lot of people among the workers at the company just like know and trust and really like people on our teams, people on other teams. And so it's not like for us and uh, for those of us uh, like Carlos and the freelancer community who know the Paizo staff, it's not like, do you trust this faceless union? It is, do right. you trust these people who you know mm-hmm. and uh, and respect and yeah. so that's th- that's sort of an important thing i do want to touch back on the idea that it's very it's a very low pay considering the area and for the amount of education and skill that you need because that kind of goes back all the way at the beginning when you said you usually talk about kind of cultural issues but this is a little bit different it is but in some ways it's uh, it's connected still sure. because Absolutely. Who, who are the kind of people who can afford to work yeah. at a job where they mm-hmm. got highly educated and then are just going to make below a living wage or like barely above a living wage in the mm-hmm. area? It's generally going to be someone who, uh, who was in a, a relatively better off situation, right? Like mm-hmm. my, my dad was the son of immigrants who escaped World War II. But off scholarships, he became a doctor and he has 
he has some money. So uh, that is enough that I don't have to fear for what would happen to me immediately uh, after Paizo. Um, my own personal finances are not such that I feel like I could retire, start a family or buy a house. Not any of those three things uh, right. in this area with the with that pain. But I at least don't have to fear like that if something happened at Paizo that I would immediately be in a situation where I have to worry about things like food uh, or, or, or living situation. Mm -hmm. And some of uh, my other coworkers do have to worry about that. And it's definitely something that makes it harder, not just at Paizo, Paizo is not the only place that pays this low of an amount, but the tabletop RPG industry in general for people who are from a background that is less privileged to apply because they don't have a cushion where it's like, uh, you know, my family could help support me if necessary for a bit while I got back on my feet. They might not have that at all. And so every, everything really ties together. Absolutely. You know, we were talking about um, the issue of marginalized folks kind of glanced at it. Like you're more likely to be alone as a marginalized person yeah. in a place where there's so much education required or something like that. So like, you know, when you're not in a union, you are more vulnerable to reprisal. You're more vulnerable to be being misunderstood and not represented. And I mean, they, they, it's a multi-layered thing. There's, yeah. there's a reason why we co I cover yeah. all here. <laughs> the, good, the good thing about Paizo is that when it comes to the workers, uh, Paizo workers, uh, at least in certain ways, and, and there are other ways that we're, we're always trying to improve, but in certain ways, Paizo workers are very diverse, especially when it comes to um, LGBTQ staff. Uh, we have... Uh, quite a few um, at Paizo. And so th that's one way that, that, that um, they're not necessarily alone, but it's still, I mean, it's called marginalized for a reason. You're going to feel isolated. And, and sure. I can, I can um, tell you that it's, it's very possible to feel isolated at any company, uh, whether or not you um, like, even without that. So it must be even worse for people who are more marginalized than, than I was. Like when I first started at Paizo, the teams were not nearly as friendly as they are now. Like uh, one of the things I've been working on is trying to get teams to be friendlier. And a lot of people have, it was absolutely not just me. But when I first started, there was actually, people might've been like just surprised when I said, oh, all the teams like each other. And we like people all across other teams because a lot of people I've talked to at other companies are like, no, you know, there's a lot of fiefdoms and like this person in this right. department has their own fiefdom and people don't like X other department. And like, there was some of that, but um, it really pulled, we really pulled together a lot recently at Paizo and um, that helps a lot, um, at least in my uh, point of view with isolation, but everyone has their own uh, point of view with isolation so like ironically we're in covid when we're like literally isolated and i'm mm -hmm. in feeling less isolated when when we were all at the office when i started and um it was kind of like yeah you're new but also your team is very isolated from the other teams <laughs> Uh, I guess, um, Carlos, talk a, bit, a little bit about uh, from your perspective. I mean, I mean, is it fair to say that you're kind of on the outside looking in? Is there uh, how porous is the border between what's happened with the unions and the freelancers? Uh, talk about like what's happening now that the unions been recognized and everything. What are the free how the freelancers relating to unions now that the union is recognized, which is one of the goals we wanted to see achieved as we were doing our work stoppage. Um, there has been probably a 
deluge of emails mm. um, about taking on new assignments since that goal has been achieved. Mm. Um, everything I was hearing from my fellow freelancers was like, we will continue work tomorrow, the day that the union gets recognized. And um, that was just such a strong binding agent for all of us freelancers. It was just amazing mm. to see even before I became a part of it. Very nice. That, and, that, and again, that, yeah. like the freelancers, not part of the union, not protected mm -hmm. by the union in any way. The right. freelancers were incredibly brave and uh, to take that, choose to take that stand because absolutely for any number of reasons, the response might not have turned out for them in, in as good of a way. Yeah. And I'm sure freelancers who started were, were worried about that in the same way that when, when we and staff first saw it, like I said, the reactions were like, Oh my gosh, is the book going to make mm -hmm. it? And do the freelancers not like us? Are they upset? Do they think we like tricked them into working with us? Mm -hmm. And then we eventually realized very, very quickly after that, no, the freelancers love us and they're doing it for us. And because right. of how much they trust us and how much they want to help us, it's about, it's about a kind of solidarity between two groups of people that uh, are not actually like legally connected by the organization to get something to happen. And it's beautiful. And I don't want to uh, kind of bring something else in again, you know, speaking from a union background, uh, a lot of the misconception about unions comes from the fact that sometimes leadership of a union is not directly connected to the workers. So like, you'll have like a, you know, like, like UAW or something like that is like, you know, international workers. So like you have this board and it's, it's going to be very far from the union. So like you, you're going to hear a lot about strikes ha happening now at John Deere and John Kellogg, uh, Kellogg and uh, these other places, the union leadership, like negotiated a contract and then the workers said no. So it's not like, you know, the union, um, the, the workers and the union are necessarily the same thing all the time. And sometimes that upper leadership can cause a lot of problems here. That's not the case. That's not right. the case. Yeah. This is just workers. And we have a name. It's a legal term called union. So it's an unfortunate we, that's hard to distinguish from some of the other things that go on. But that's what like just would be really crystal clear about a what the union is and why a bunch of freelancers feel so much love. Because you're not fall in love with lawyers. Now, <laughs> no, exactly. No, no. You're not fall in love with international. You're falling in love with Mark and with you know all these other people. No. Like that, 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 that's where the, the brotherhood and the sisterhood was. Now, to be clear, um, unions have a hierarchy where you've got the um, UPW, which is a very specific union, and and yeah, um, UPW are going to be who are negotiating with Paizo, not like some kind of upper international conglomerate. Right. And then those are part of something called a local, which is yes. a larger group of the smaller unions. And then those are themselves part of a bigger, more umbrella union. And the way that that works is mainly, I believe, so that unions can support each other. And that way, if you have one union under the umbrella, I, I'm guessing who like has to do a very big strike and others who didn't have to do a strike at that period of time, there might be some ability to support back and forth um, right, and not have like companies because they'll do that. They'll play one entity off another. So it's like, okay, you're striking. Right. Let me go ahead and get these writers or get these people that are like these, these artists and everything. So like, that's and, why yeah. a lot of coordination has to happen. Uh, and well, UPW okay. is part of the communion work, uh, commu not communion, communication workers, CWA yes. um, is the parent union uh, right. of UPW. 
Okay. So then, uh, you know, being my full time, thank you so much for joining us. So I'd like to kind of round the conversation by talking about next steps. So next steps is like clearly the the action was to get the union recognized, which is a you know, because like it's almost like more tweets went out for that than like the initial announcement because people can announce unions all they want. It takes the recognition of from the top end to like, OK, this is real now. We have bargaining power now. And like we we've overcome a real hurdle. So like that oh, that hurdle has been overcome. And I was like, yay. the announcement actually and... had more. The Did announcement okay. of the union made it to number five trending on Twitter. Oh, nice. It was behind um, only um, Steve Bannon refusing to testify, um, <laughs> people, be, people being mad at Joe Biden, and two things that were happening with the MLB, mm. uh, with baseball. <laughs> and it be, it beats an NFL number being retired for some famous player, Batman, uh, George Takei, <laughs> and National Dessert Day. Wow. Uh, at, during a very small period of time right. at which it was number five, uh, which was it was really shocking. But um, it was also very surprising. And I think even to like probably people from from other unions that it was recognized voluntarily by our, our by Paizo after seven days. Like it was announced on day one. It was recognized on day eight. Mm. Like yeah, super fast. that's not how it usually goes. Right. Right. Like I think Half Price Books, uh, which is another is kind of like a book um, reseller that's also in the area, tried to unionize and they their store put up like a big sign that was like anti-union. It's like we're fighting it to the ends of however mm -hmm. much we can, and that was that was extremely recent. Amazon the, uh, in the Bessemer plant in uh, in Alabama, I think it was. You know, they they announced they they drive to unionize, and it's like all the tactics came out, and all the you know the the subtle things like because you're because technically you're not like as as a boss, you're not supposed to like you know directly fight a worker action like that or a worker like mm -hmm. attempt to managers gather, but, managers cannot speak against the union, right. and even before it's it's voted for, they are not supposed to speak in right. favor of the union in case it's used in a court case or something weird, but. The difference between legal and moral, mm -hmm. the legal standard of like, you know, managers pushing back may be pretty low. And then there's things, there's gray area that that, that gets explored. Blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. I'm sure so Amazon's yeah. lawyers know where that gray area is. <laughs> <laughs> so then you're recognized. So then the next steps. Right. And so it will mm -hmm. there be a formal collective bargaining? Is that the next step or are there in intermediate steps that have to happen before that? Well, I mean, in general, for a union, the point of a union is to do a collective bargaining right. um, exercise. So uh, the intermediate step is to kind of, you know, get a group of negotiators for the collective bargaining, get that all set up sure. and um, get it set up on the executive side, which is not really a major intermediate step. So, yes, the next main step is to get ready for and perform. Uh, collective bargaining mm -hmm. and try to find something that is good for Paizo that can be agreed upon by by everyone, mm -hmm. uh, hopefully. Are, Compromise are you... isn't always one that makes everyone happy. Sometimes it's ones that makes everyone a little bit unhappy because they didn't get exactly what they want. But hopefully it'll be one that makes things better um, for, for everyone at Paizo as much as it can. So then better as an open-ended term. Oh, and sure. I imagine mm -hmm. that there's still discussion need to be had in terms of specific things that are going to be pushed for. But in general, sure. I can tell you our three big things. Sure. OK, so 
the three big goals, um, and you're not going to be shocked if you've been listening to this interview because they're things I've been talking about, are um, generally gr greater pay equity, including mm -hmm. salary increases to match the cost of living, uh, securing permanent remote work options for, uh, for most positions. Obviously, a warehouse has to be where a warehouse is. But one thing we didn't get into here that is true is, well, I mean, we kept saying it's a very expensive area, but a lot of these jobs could be done in a much cheaper area. And then even if, if the job didn't pay that much more, it suddenly gives you enough to pay for a mortgage in that area. And right. then you could sell the house later to try to retire. And then you suddenly get some of these things. I was saying that a Paisa worker can't really do any of them unless they have like a rich spouse or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third thing is more transparency, mm -hmm. uh, more transparency on finances and plans and other things like that. So those are the three biggest um, public goals that um, the union has. And of mm -hmm. course, like just by being a union, like you said, people aren't at will and the union is automatically um, like reactively is, is protecting people and pro. Uh, so reactively protecting people, protecting people, especially mm -hmm. from marginalized communities um, and then proactively we're looking towards um, going for those three goals that I just said. Mm -hmm. uh, from the freelancer end, uh, do you anticipate, because again, we, we're keeping these separate, freelancers mm -hmm. are not the same things, employees. Is there, like, what is the stance of a freelancer when it comes to this stuff? Is it just like, kind of like, wait and see, we did our part, we did the action, or, you know, <laughs> or um, is there something that's percolating among that community that is a yeah. contribution? Um, I think, at least for me personally, and I think this is something that, the majority of freelancers I've worked with will probably agree on is that um, if the situation, if the standards at Paizo can be increased for their workers, then eventually it will help us as well. Mm. Um, I think yes. that one of the personal favorite things I've seen at a convention myself is that um, employees for Paizo like Adam Daigle will be at a convention and would talk about how important he is, how important it is to raise the floor for the minimum amount that freelancers make with Paizo. And he's always been an advocate for that. And um, I think ultimately for me personally, um, because I do a lot of advocacy for the uh, Seattle video game community, as well as uh, Paizo and freelancing, is that um, I want to see the standards increase for the game industry just as a whole. Mm. Um, I was recently catching up with a friend of mine who works in uh, film this previous summer and we used to go to high school together and he's actually part of a cameraman's union. And even though the income he makes might fluctuate depending upon the work he gets in, the comparison between the games industry and the film industry is just the night and day difference because the film industry has been around for longer and they've been Absolutely. unionized for a lot longer than we have. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that just this progressive action could eventually help the game industry as a whole in the long run. And that's what I want to see personally increase for everyone. So then uh, I'm going to have to eat the pain in the butt over here mm -hmm. uh, and point out that one of the, one of the things that management says about unions, one of the uh, fears of consumers that when they hear the word union is that, higher pay for the creators will eventually get passed on to the customer that books will go up uh supplements will go up it'll just be a more expensive hobby overall now i mean that's not something that 
uh, you know, I have a problem with, <laughs> but you will hear that. You will hear that, you know, okay, how much more is this going to cost if like, uh, you know, the union all of a sudden, like they win this like huge increase in pay. You just mentioned that the margins are pretty thin overall. So it's yeah, like those, uh, th- those margins of, come from somewhere. I kind of came, came up on that early when I mentioned that it now, the prices have gone down per page with pages having more content and better arts. Right. Since 1974, not counting for inflation. So the problem is that, that like when it comes to paying a like appropriate wages and especially for the fact that it's technical writing, that it actually is very inexpensive compared to mm-hmm. some equivalent amount of writing or work on say a board game where people mm-hmm. will, people are willing to pay a lot more for a board game than a book because I guess there's there's a lot of like there's a lot right. of intangibles towards it and the fact that board games you have all those pieces so you can kind of justify it to yourself when you pay however much for Gloomhaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm getting all of those pieces that are in Gloomhaven, even though an RPG book might have taken like a, an amount of effort that is uh, you know that is proportionally right. A, a equal or more um, and certainly is more than a game that's lighter than Gloomhaven, right? Sure. And so um, it's something that's very tricky because a lot of people think of books as just like, oh, you know, it's words and ideas and they don't really have value. I can and, write a book. I write memos. I just, yeah. That kind of thing. But are willing to think of board games as something that mm. is a premium product that they'll pay for more. And I'm not sure how um is the best way to to handle that overall but like i would suspect even if there wasn't a union that due to the global shipping crisis that rpg books across the board are going to go up because i mean i've seen that in board games too board game companies saying that their shipping prices are going up um Mm -hmm. across the board because of that shipping crisis so i'm sure prices are going to go up but they've also been depressed in the tabletop rpg industry Mm -hmm. compared to like you, it's never good if it was more expensive in 1974 right. than 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 it is now before the fact that it inflated so much. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really tough conversation. It's why, it's why I wanted to kind of foreground that uh, and you know f- look to the future because, I mean, we're going to continue conversations here on Shelf Stories uh, about what would needs to happen in order to be better to workers. It, the consumer is going to have to get used to paying a little bit more. The, the, just the bottom I mean, line. I don't feel good about the fact that people are going to do that, uh, right? Like, right. I I like that that um, you know people are able to to afford the hobby, and you know, Paizo is going to continue to have uh, rules for free on the website right. Archives of Nethys. Uh, Paizo has a pretty deep commitment to making sure people can play, and that you know people can pay. You know, they pay for certain certain like versions of the product, the PDF or the books or things like that. But if you can't, you can still play because we'll always give the rules for free. So in that regard, anyone who does have that like proud collection of Paizo books on their shelf that they can show off is, uh, is something of a patron of, of the mm-hmm. company and has chosen to, um, to get the game in that particular format. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm very happy. Uh, with anyone who does do that and un- unfortunately just the way of it is that it's going to wind up probably costing more than that whether anything happens with the union or not 
And um, there, there will always be a free version for those who can't, but for those who can and are willing to pay more, then I, I deeply respect that as someone mm-hmm. whose salary and living comes, um, comes off of that. I respect how much you love the, the hobby and are, are willing to support it with, you know, your hard earned money. Yeah. I mean, and same thing about buying American. Like, you know, we're talking about like, you know, the global shipping crisis. Can we get more American stuff? By can we getting, bring stuff to America? We're, you know, paying a premium, a pre- paying more, but, you know, is it a premium or is it a market correction? Because prices have been depressed for so long. That's a huge conversation. I don't want to open that. I just want to kind oh, of yeah. address, no that. <laughs> address that. Uh, so like, let's, let's end on a, a happy note. Um, let's end on just, you know, how can people support what is like, you know, so I'm doing, I'm doing my part, right? I mean, I, I, have a, I have a channel and I want to get the word out. I really do, you know, in terms of people, I hope people, lots of people watch this uh, and get an education, uh, you know, and maybe even, you know, it could be as simple as, you know, being willing to pay like $5 more for a book. Uh, but what are some suggestions? And I'll go to Carlos first. What are some suggestions for gamers who are here? How can they support what the overall project is? Uh, one of the things that I have loved seeing from Paizo recently is putting out the author list for all of the products that Paizo has been producing. And if there's an individual whose work you really enjoy, um, you're, you're a lot more easily able to do it now than you were before. If there's something that you really, really like, and you want to see that author put more stuff out for the company, then try to find out where their personal websites are. Mm. and all the different products that they work on and just keep buying books. Um, It is incredibly fun to design for Pathfinder. And I've been doing work on both editions for the game. And um, it also just tell us that you like it. Um, There was something that I did in the uh, APG for Bards for second edition. And I found out on the major Pathfinder Reddit, someone was using my content. And that feels amazing. <laughs> so always let us know that you um, enjoy the content that we make and we would love to put more of it out for you. Don't, uh, don't be shy about like, you know, you go into a bookstore and you buy and you get a book and you want to take a picture with it. Don't be shy to put that thing on social media and tag yeah. the author. Just to, and then maybe like, oh, should I do that? Do that. <laughs> yes. And if yep. someone yep. knows who wrote that section of the book, we will hopefully tell you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah you two are so right. And it's hard because when you have something that's a criticism, all of us just psychologically. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm sure, you know, Jason, uh, about people's psychology. No question. Uh, we're, uh, we're moved to um, to speak out because something's wrong and we want to tell people what's feeling wrong. But when mm-hmm. things are feeling right or good, it's actually like we're not as moved to just go out and and gush about it. In fact, there's sometimes a bit of anxiety being like, am I just going to sound like I'm too much of a fan or, mm-hmm. you know, that I'm just being too gushing and, and they're yeah, and not going to want gonna it. Are they going to think that I'm like, uh, you're bothering them? I don't want to be a bother yeah, people. I don't exactly. Want- yeah. Exactly. There's even a negative reinforcement towards doing it. But creatives live and breathe that stuff and we need yeah. it. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, what Carlos said is exactly right for freelancers. I actually did a ridiculously too long Twitter thread um, in the past, like right kind of right after all the stuff started happening uh, later that week before um, before sort of some of the union things that was just on the unsung heroes at Paizo, where I talked about some of the different teams and named all the members. And I, what I tried to do was I created an exercise at the end of each team 
I was like, okay, that's this team. Here's an exercise that you can do if you have enough spoons and mental bandwidth that you want to support this team or this group of people. And I included the freelancers in there, Mm. even though they're not like um, directly employed by Paizo. And what I said for the freelancers was almost exactly what Carlos said about find the freelancers who appear again and again on your favorite Mm -hmm. products um, and single them out, find other things that they've done, see if they have a Patreon or other things. Uh, That's, that's completely the right call, but there's things you can do for any group of people at Paizo. And and I encourage you to try to dive down and find that Twitter thread. If you want my full, full list of um, things that you can do in terms of supporting. Uh, Give your, give your handle please on Twitter. Um, that's just my name, Mark Seifter, just so M-A-R-K-S-E-I-F-T-E-R, or you mm-hmm. you may see it floating beneath me. I don't know how um, it's going to work out here, but it's just at that. Um, in terms of supporting the union directly, the union has merch that you can buy to show your support. Uh, it's got the union, the United Paizo Workers logo, which is like a cobalt holding a uh, mining pick. And you can also oh, get... Yes, 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 you got, came in. got the swag. Yes, yes, mine is in mine is in the mail. Don't Still. split the party. Still waiting yes. on the mug. Oh, nice, nice. And you can also get uh the logo to use as like a Twitter avatar or a Zoom background and things like that. It's all on unitedpizoworkers.org slash merch as the show your support um section. There's also a lot of other cool stuff on unitedpizoworkers.org just in general with an FAQ and some mm-hmm. like mini blogs about those first eight days when it was happening. I think that it may have been anticipated that that would have to go on longer before the union was recognized. But um, so it's it's very important to show your support to creators. It's, a, it's an industry where all of the things that I said about crunch being crunched and, uh, and underpaid are true, but also like you're being also abused by some people online who um, sometimes right. go as far as to make death threats or other things like that. So if you ever are like, Oh no, I shouldn't, they don't want to hear this positive thing from me. We absolutely <laughs> want to hear <laughs> that positive thing from you. And it's so important that like people will share it on like an all hands channel of absolutely. our work chat. They'll be like, I got a positive thing about us <laughs> that, was, that wasn't just about me because it also talked about other things for Paizo. Let me share it with all of you. It's mm-hmm. trying to brighten up the day for everyone else. So it is always deeply appreciated. It is not a bother. It is um, is like pure energy for mm-hmm. uh, for creatives. Absolutely. Carlos, how, where can they uh, get you on social medias? Uh, you can find um, all the things I've had published at uh, somethingclevergames.com. And you can reach me on Twitter at Carlos at SCG, A-T-S-C-G spelled out. And all my socials and contact information are on my website as well. All right. So uh, here on Shelf Stories, uh, this is a new thing for us. We're not, my first, like, re- I've done a, I've had a couple of RBG guests here before, but in terms of like a really deep dive, uh, as uh, you said, uh, inside baseball type of co- uh, conversation, uh, this is, you know, I'm, I'm dipping my toe in. Uh, creatives on the RPG space, if you want to come here, you have a home here. Uh, people who are freelancers or who are experiencing kind of workplace stuff you know, uh, please reach out. You know, this is a, this is a channel where I want to be continue to be these conversations. This did not come from nowhere. This is a, a long building thing. And this is just the next chapter of stuff. And it does not have to be bad. Right. Not antagonistic. Right. right. Mark. Right. Carlos. Yeah, it is good. Uh, and I have some other contact information in, in addition to my uh, Twitter handle. 
So um, I'm a co-host of a stream that is on Tuesdays, not this week, but uh, uh, Tuesdays in, at 7 p.m. and Saturdays at 10 a.m. And it's called RK Mark. So if you go to twitch.tv slash RK Mark, that's that channel. You can see a bunch of videos that we make there. We have a YouTube channel where we put them up as well. And the Twitch channel has a link to our Discord. And that's where you mm -hmm. can find me uh uh, and much most most easily if you want to talk and kind of join our little community that we have there. Very cool. Mark Seifter, uh, Carlos Cabrera, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you much. Thank you. If you can change your mind, you can change your world, people. So until next time, later, everybody. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop, or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week for another Top 5 list.